Michael told you a little earlier about Discover Bethel next week. I hope that you'll come. It's a great, uh, it's always a great time. One of my favorite things we do around here. And uh, then to let you know, next week we're going to begin a series on the attributes of God. And so we'll be talking about um, who God is. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. It's been great preparing for it and look forward to the time that we'll have together uh, looking at that. All right, so. Uh, here's where we are. John 21. We started John chapter 1 way back in September of 2018. And um, so now we're the Sunday after Easter. We're coming to the end of John. And here's the thing. So if you've um, so if you got your Bible at the very end of chapter 20, I just want to show you something that it, um, makes John 21 kind of unique um, amongst uh, the gospel writers. So at the end of chapter 20, this is what it says. I don't have it up here, but if you don't have it in front of you, just listen. So John writes this whole thing, and then he says this, his last two verses. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. And then there's a, there's a period after it. And everything in you wants to go, man... That's a great book. You know, and just be done. So close the book and think, I just, want to, I just want to sit and soak that up for a little while. And it is, because it is a great gospel. It is a literary masterpiece. And everything in you thinks, at the end of chapter 20, um, that the end of that verse, John's done. And he's just going to set the, the pen down and send it off. And yet... You turn the page, and there's another chapter. The best way that I can describe John chapter 21, in fact, this was going to be my title, and then I thought better of it, because um, it'll be like on the podcast without any context. But John 21 is like Thor's hammer, Okay. No one got that reference. My daughter got that reference. I think she's the only one. All right, so here's what it is. So, you know, you ever seen a Marvel? Let's start here. Marvel Comics. Anybody? You there? Okay. Anybody seen a Marvel movie? All right, so everybody knows. What do you do after the end of the movie? You wait because there's a there's this, this scene that's in the credits. And, and what the scene is, is the scene says, it's like this. It's like the movie's over. Okay, the story, that story's done. That that movie is over. But you wait because you know a scene is coming at the end of the credits because while this movie might be over, the story's not over. That's what it is. This is like a post-credit scene. It's like Thor's hammer. It's my favorite post-credit Marvel scene. It's the one, it's in Iron Man 2, and Coulson is, you know, you've seen all the credits, and you're sitting there, and you're waiting. And, and then, but then, all of a sudden, the screen goes back up, and it's Coulson, Philip Coulson, who's the right-hand man of Nick Fury, who's the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. All right. I digress. You don't have to put that in your notes. All right, so... He's, he's driving in his cool car, and he's, through, you know, he's in this desert. You find out later the desert's in Mexico. There's a big crater that's out in the middle of nowhere. And Nick, uh, Phil Coulson picks up his phone. He probably calling Nick Fury. He says, you know, yeah, we found it. And you're like, what did he find? Right? 
And then all of a sudden it pans, and you see Thor's hammer there. And here's what all of a sudden you realized. Oh man, this story just got way cooler and way bigger than I thought it was going to be. Because for that, we didn't know Thor was going to be in this whole deal. We didn't know who's going to play Thor. And then, then, you know, the Hemsworth guy and all that stuff. And um, those were awesome. This is Thor's hammer, okay? Which is wrong for a thousand reasons. But anyways, that's what it's like. And John is saying the story, while the gospel's over, the story has only just begun. And so I just want to show you what it is that John puts in this epilogue to help foreshadow the future that's coming. All right, look at what it says. John chapter 21, I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll read through it together, and I'll make some comments. It says this, And after after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, Jesus is in, uh, was in Jerusalem. That's where he was arrested. That's where um, he was crucified and buried and rose. John will tell us in chapter 20, there are, there are two appearances to the disciples in chapter 20. The first one is on Easter night, that Sunday night. And it's when the disciples there, they're, they're huddled. They know Jesus is gone, but they don't know where he is. And they're, they're um, huddled in this room behind a locked door, and all of a sudden Jesus appears. And um, he says to them, hey, like my Father sent me, I am sending you. And then he tells them, you're going to go proclaim the forgiveness of sins to everybody. And so they, they have this deal. John makes the note, though, in that appearance... Thomas wasn't there. And so then Thomas comes back after Jesus leaves and says, hey, what did I miss? And they were like, a lot. And um, so they begin to tell him. And then Thomas says, well, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know if I believe that. Which is one of those things Thomas is like, man, I wish I hadn't said that. So anyways, I don't believe that. Jesus comes back eight days later. John records that. And this appearance was to Thomas in the presence of the other disciples, and they worked that out. You know, Thomas was like, ah, unless I, you know, touch his wounds, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, that sort of thing. You guys, I got nothing working today. All right, so we'll just keep going. All right, so that's what it is. And then so they leave Jerusalem, though, and they go up north to Galilee, because in Mark's gospel, Jesus has said, when I rise from the dead, I'm going to go to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. Galilee's where they're all from. That's where they lived. Um, and they got to go home. I mean, you can't just stay in Jerusalem. I mean, they didn't have homes there, so they've got to go home, and then they've also got to eat and do all of those things. And Jesus, while he's making these appearances over 40 days, Jesus isn't, like, abiding with them and with them all the time. They've been with him for three years. They've, you know, walked with him and talked with him, and he said, we're going to go this way, and so they follow him this way, and he said, we're going to go down here, and they follow him over there. But they're, they're left in kind of this, this limbo, okay? It's interesting to note that the gospel writers, that you can read through the gospels, there are several other appearances that the gospel writers record. In every one of the appearances, you realize the disciples never sort of, they never get 
used to this thing. You know what I mean? Here it is, the risen Jesus in His glorified body. And they never, they're never just like super comfortable and okay with it. I mean, it's still amazing to them. It still brings awe. It still brings wonder. Every single time it does. So in verse 2, we're told um, Jesus is going to appear to them. Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. That's up north. And it says this, Simon Peter... Thomas, the twin, there's seven guys here, right? Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and then two other disciples nobody cares about. And then in verse 3, that's kind of what he says in the Greek. All right, so then in verse 3 it says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and got in the boat but that night, they caught nothing. Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, this is where they're from. This is their history. Zebedee was a, um, a fisherman. He had a fishing company. James and John worked in it. Peter also was a fisherman. These men knew how to fish. This is where they grew up. This is um, the, the Sea of Galilee is where they learned to fish. It is where they spent their life fishing. And so they're up north in this place called Tagba. If you went to Sea Galilee, it's up north. The beach is not sandy beach. It's a rocky beach. And I, I, if you ever go to Israel with us, I can take you right there. It was likely this very place that Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, shows up on the shore of the beach one night when these guys are fishing. Before they knew who he was, they hadn't caught anything. And he said, hey, throw it over to the other side. And they caught so many fish that filled up the boat and their nets broke. And it was when Jesus called his disciples to him. Well, here at the end of the John's Gospel, there's the scene, and it's, and it's happening all over again. And it may be the very same place, and Jesus is going to be standing on the shore. But Peter, man, he's gone fishing. So for the last three years, um, they've followed Jesus. They've, they've come to believe he's the Messiah. They've learned from him. They expected him to reign as the king of the Jews. And then suddenly, beginning on a Thursday night, in a matter of hours, everything changed. And by the next morning, this man is going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to uh, be or he's arrested, he's tried, he's judged, he's crucified. They're going to lay him in a tomb. And they'll have buried their Messiah. And with him, they'll have buried all their expectations, all their thoughts and ideas and hopes about what life was going to be. And then they have this sort of period of, I mean, the world has changed, but they're in limbo. The Messiah had died, but he's no longer dead. Jesus had appeared to them, but the appearances were, were unpredictable, and they weren't sustained, and they, they were intimate, but they weren't abiding, and and. The Spirit of God hadn't come upon them yet. And they weren't with Jesus daily. They weren't 
being led constantly by his leadership. And then they realize, listen, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, I mean, we look back, the kingdom of God had already come. I mean, with the resurrection, the kingdom of God came into existence here. Everything's changing and has changed. But the only thing the disciples could feel was the not yet. That's where we live. We, we live in this already and not yet. I mean, already, if you're a believer, you're pure and holy and blameless and in Christ and, and saved forever. And yet we experience this reality of not yet because we know we still struggle with sin in our lives and we know we still struggle with the brokenness of the world and disappointment and grieving at death and all of these things. So this, we know there's this already... There's also this not yet, and all the disciples could feel was the not yet. And they were still mourning the loss of all the things that they had hoped, and they didn't know what to do, although they knew everything had changed. And so they go back to where they were from, they go back home, and yet you know what happens when everything changes. You go back home, and home's not really the way it was before. Things aren't really like they were before. But Peter says, I'm going fishing. And that is not just a pastime. It, you know, we, I think, you know, they have to eat. I mean, they got to do something. And I think Peter's lost here. And I, I, not only that, I, I, I got to do something. And Peter didn't see. I think he probably thought, you know, I'm not a part of this future anymore. I denied Jesus three times. I mean, when it really counted, I mean, I, d I didn't put the money where my mouth was. And I'm sure Jesus is done with me, and I probably have no future in serving him. And, you know, he probably thought he was disqualified because of his denials. Probably said things, you know, what business would Jesus have to do with me now? I mean, I betrayed him and I, and I denied him and, and I'm shamed. And I'm not to mention how embarrassed I am. And so he goes fishing. And here's the deal, though. Peter had already been called out of fishing. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus stood on the side and pulled him out of the, brings him out of the water. He says, you're not going to fish that way anymore. You're now going to be a fisher of men. I'm calling you to something greater. Although he couldn't have imagined it at the time, had no idea what being a pastor would be or what being an apostle would be or that there would be a New Testament or there would be the church or the coming of the Holy Spirit or um, any of those things. And so I think we find here what John's giving us this picture of is more that's going on than maybe even the characters realize. That Peter's going out to fish, and the reality is he's no good at that all by himself, just like he's not going to be any good at this ministry thing Jesus has called him all by himself. And what happens next is absolutely none, nothing less than a sheer display of Jesus' amazing grace. There's no other way to describe it. 
would be a series of three things that happened that are all very intentional. And I always get kind of a lump in my throat as I talk, read through John 21. It's just emotional to me. Jesus is going to begin a series of three redemptions for Peter. And the first one begins here in verse 4. It says this, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, it's beautiful. I never called them that before. Do you have any fish? And I just imagine these old guys have been fishing all night and they're tired and they haven't caught anything. And some yahoo on the shore. No. I mean, you can see it, right? And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Huge amount of fish. In fact, the later tells us 153 large fish, which is a lot of fish. And the nets don't break. John's giving us a glimpse of what's to come. I think he's giving us here a glimpse of the church, a glimpse of what ministry is going to look like in a new age, a glimpse of what Jesus can do with an ordinary man, with, with an ordinary woman, you, from fishermen to failures. And what he's doing to change the world. See, Jesus had changed everything, and the disciples were going to get to watch all this change come true. They were going to get to walk the journey that Jesus had been walking. Actually, the journey Jesus finished and completed and now they're going to get to walk in, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this triumphal procession of victory. And not that it's going to be easy. I mean, there will be some hard things. There's going to be suffering and hardship and persecution and, and things hard like they could never have imagined. And yet this triumphal, glorious journey of victory they wouldn't have dared dream in their wildest dreams. Before their very eyes, you know what they were going to get to see? They're going to get to see spiritually dead people come and rise to new life. They're going to see prisoners who were captive by sin and death set free. They're going to see the lame walk and the blind see. And they're going to understand what Jesus means when He says, See, I'm making everything new. And this world system, this broken world, so oftentimes in the Old Testament is described as the, as the sea. With all the wind and all the waves and all the dark depth. in this broken world will fight for its own interest with all its might. It will rebel against the change that is coming. It will cling to its brokenness and it will call it freedom. And it will stop at nothing to resist the new creation and yet nothing can stop it from happening. And little did Peter know when he led those seven men out into the sea to fish, that he was acting out his life not as a fisherman, 
but as a minister of the gospel. And by himself, he'll catch nothing. But in the sound of Jesus' voice and his, his presence in our midst, under the direction of his leadership, the sea will give forth this bounty beyond what they could imagine. And the nets won't break. They broke in Luke 5. They're not going to break here. Gospel, they're going to see it draw men and women out of the darkness and the depths of the world into the light of new life. Now, this is one of those things where you go, okay, this is such a great analogy, and John is so full of symbolism. And then sometimes as a reader, you have to know sort of when does the symbolism stop? Because if we press this too far, then we have to figure out, well, what do we do about the eating fish, eating of the fish? Because that's weird. If we had to eat fish, and it was a symbol. Okay, all right. So we keep going. Seven. I mean, right? I mean, you think, oh, okay. Well, okay. We'll just stop it there. Fine. All right. So then, in verse seven, look at this. Verse seven and eight are overwhelming. It's okay. You can laugh, even if you think I'm not being funny. You can err on the side of laughter around here. All right. The disciple that whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter. So this is John. John always veils himself in the gospel. He says, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards away. It's overwhelming. Here's the deal. So in Luke 5, what happens is Peter, the, the, the very same, they, they fish all night, uh, they catch nothing, uh, they hear the voice of an unknown man at the time. They didn't know who Jesus was. An unknown man says, hey, throw it on the other side. They, they humor him, they throw it on the other side, and then they begin to pull so many fish in that their nets break. In Luke 5, the way that we see this initial calling of Peter, he gets out of the boat after all of this happens, and he, and he comes to Jesus, and he falls to his knees at Jesus' knees. And he says, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here in John 21... He realizes it's Jesus. And he puts on his cloak and throws himself in the water and can't get there fast enough. Now, here's what's interesting. You've seen a lot of movies. Not very many Marvel ones, obviously. But anyway, you've seen movies. And every time someone goes to throw themselves in the water, Right? Like, they didn't know they were going to throw themselves in the water, but they got to go get in the water. What do they do? They take stuff off, right? I mean, you pull your shoes off, you throw your coat off. and Don't you think it's interesting that before he throws himself in the water, he puts the cloak on? I want to talk about a couple of contrasts between the first time and the second time. I, I think this first time, what happens is Peter encounters Jesus, and he catches this glimpse of his holiness and his 
and His glory. And, 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 but apart from relationship with Jesus, that is fatal. I mean, the presence of the light of God's holiness, our sin is exposed. And Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. And so apart from relationship, holy holiness threatens to burn you to smithereens. Can't survive it. Relationship, however, changes everything. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Jesus came to humanity. He took on the flesh of humanity so that, John says at the beginning, we could, we could see His glory so that we could see God. And then what happens is Jesus takes our sins to the cross. He, he becomes sin. He becomes your sin. He becomes my sin. And because of that, and then he dies for it. Because of that, it says we can become the righteousness of God, which means we can come now into the presence of the holiness of God safely. And knowing Jesus and trusting Him and putting your faith in Him, that takes your sin away. Trusting that only Jesus can cleanse you from your sin because of the death that He died on the cross, that's the only hope we have to be clean from sin. And see, Peter knows Jesus. And Peter knows Jesus is His only hope. And when you know Jesus is your only hope, and you know, you know that Jesus loves you, your, your brokenness drives you towards Him. It compels you toward Him. But it's interesting. Peter put on his clothes. I think what Peter's doing is he's covering himself. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. and With sin brought shame and death. And so they try to cover themselves. And I think that's what Peter's doing. And yet he rushes toward him. Peter is broken and clothed in shame. But he has nowhere else to go. Come what may, he must be with Jesus. See, I think what happens is there's a sense in which I think Peter, Peter dies to himself at the third denial. What we're going to see is Jesus going to bring him back to life on the shore of Galilee. It, it, Peter's a model for us this morning. I mean, when we're, when we're in um, of, of what to do and where to go in broken moments, you know, when, when brokenness and sin is exposed, or we're broken because of grief and heartache, or, or the bottom has just dropped right out of life. And listen, I, don't, I am not thinking of anybody's story this morning, but as I look across this room, I, there's enough people in here that some of us are broken this morning. Some of us are sitting here clothed in our shame. I want you to know, Peter knows, 
And he cannot get to Jesus fast enough. Where do you go? What do you run to? Is your instinct to run towards Jesus or to run away from him? Peter's, John's invitation through Peter's story is we can run to him fast as we can get there. And I want you to know the incredible grace that follows once Peter gets to the feet of Jesus. I can't believe it. I mean, it's like, I can't believe what Jesus does here in grace. Here's what he's going to do. Jesus is going to recreate the scene of the crime. Okay? Look at verse 9. It says, um, well, verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging in that field of nest. So, verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. If you were here a few weeks ago, we were in John chapter 18 and then into 19, and I said, there's this scene. And so, so Peter comes in and he's in the courtyard of Pharaoh. Or not Pharaoh. That's the wrong testament. All right. He's in the courtyard of Pilate. All right. And so he's there. And, and remember the servant girl? He's like, hey, aren't you one of him? One of his disciples? And you know where he's standing? You know where John tells us he's standing? At a charcoal fire. You ever stood around a charcoal fire before? Or a fire pit or something you had a sweatshirt on? What's this? What happens to that sweatshirt? Stink. I mean, yeah, you smell like the fire. You go home, you put it in the wash. Of all of our senses, I feel like smell is one of those that's so powerful. I can be walking through some place and I can catch a glimpse of my grandma, you know, just a whiff of my grandmother's perfume off somebody. And it just, it takes me back there. If not for this, I think every single time Peter smells a charcoal fire, all he would ever think about is his failure. They come out of the boat. It's dawn. The, the sun is coming up. And Jesus has gotten there in time to make a charcoal fire. He's recreating the scene of the crime. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. He gets out. He swims to the shore. And those guys row. They're dragging the nets behind the boat. And Jesus says, come have breakfast. Bring some of those fish. Peter says, I'll do it. And he runs and he, he, he drank the whole net of fish by himself. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread, 
still serving them and, and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And now this was the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. And when Peter had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these guys love me? He's probably calling back on Peter's words like, you can find in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, I don't care what these guys do, even if they all leave you, I'll never leave you. Or back in John 13 when he said, What do you mean I can't follow you? I'll lay my life down for you. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. It's a shepherding image, pastoring image. Peter didn't fully, no way he could fully know what all that would mean yet. But you remember he calls him to follow him at the beginning in Luke 5. And here Jesus is recreating that calling. He's redeeming it. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, tend to my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think it says there in verse 17 that Peter is grieved because it is the third time because it dawns on him what Jesus is doing. He's not mad at Jesus. He's not grieved at Jesus. He is coming face to face with his own grief. And here's what John is a literary master, okay? It's the greatest literature in the whole world. And he uses all these synonyms. Feed and tend. Lamb and sheep. They all mean the same thing, essentially. He uses two words for love. One is agape, one is phileo. Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo you. One means brotherly love. and I, you know, There may be something to all that. But there is another set of synonyms that Peter, I mean, that John uses here that just, they catch me off guard and it can't see it in the English. And even if you don't see it, it's no big deal. It's just one of those things that it struck me this week. I hadn't seen it before. And it's the word for no. You know I do. You know that I love you. First time. You know that I love you. The second time. You know everything. That's the third time. 
Each of those times, it's a word in the Greek, mean, um, it's oidia, and it means to observe something, to, to look at it and make observations about it. This last time in verse 17, after he says, you know everything, he says here, you know that I love you. And he uses a different word. It's the word gnosko. It means not just to observe. It means to know intimately. It means to know relationally. It means to know completely. It's a way of saying, you know this to the degree that the matter is settled. And think what Peter is expressing when he says, you know that I love you. You know it all. And I know that you know. And there's nothing left to hide and there's nothing I have to prove. You know. It's moving to me. He's going to tell Peter, I want you to follow me. Which is what he said to him in the beginning. This time he gives him a little more background to what that's going to mean, though. You can read this a couple of ways. Listen, you have to read this through the lens of Jesus' absolute grace and absolute love for Peter. But Peter is going to stand before more than 5,000 people days from here. And this man in all of his brokenness will be filled with the Holy Spirit and he will stand in Jerusalem and proclaim the risen Jesus and 5,000 people are going to go, I believe that. And they're going to be saved. And the Holy Spirit's going to come in this amazing display of confirmation. And Peter cannot imagine. Can't imagine what is to come. And there will be glory and joy. And and there's going to be suffering and hardship and persecution because we are still in a broken world. Calling people out of brokenness and calling them out of sin. And the world's doing everything to resist it. And so you're going to experience suffering. Jesus is going to say, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I overcame the world. And so he wants Peter to know in verse 18 about his suffering. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Peter, you denied me Oh man, you're going to identify me with me more than you could ever imagine. Peter, you're going to be crucified. 
The church fathers right after the first century record that. The legend about it is, is that Peter demanded that he be crucified upside down because he did not think he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Okay, Peter, follow me. I love that. And everything in me wants Peter to go. Where you go, I'll follow. Wouldn't that be a great worship song? Right? Something like that. That's so totally not what Peter does. Here's the deal. Saved by the blood of Jesus spilt on the cross. Peter's still Peter, okay? Jesus says this to him. You know what Peter does? He begins to look around like, did anybody else hear that? And he says this. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. John always fails himself. The one who also leaned back during, uh, against him during the supper and asked, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Well, Lord, what about this man? I love that. It's so human and strange and predictable and comforting to me. And then Jesus said to him, to his friend, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is it to you? You follow me. It says that to all of us, actually. Do not compare your life or your circumstances or your blessings or your sufferings to anybody else. I am sovereign, Jesus says. I am after your good. Oh, I care a great deal about your good. And I am here to fulfill the will of my Father. You follow me. Trust me. Whatever may come. And don't be distracted by all the things that are part of the secret will of God, which means the will of God that He hasn't told us and hasn't felt obligated to inform us about. And even if He did, it is so infinite, our finite minds wouldn't know what to do with it. So don't be distracted by the secret will of God. Lean in by faith to that which you know. Now it's interesting, verse 23 reminds us the church can be kind of weird about stuff. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. To die. 
but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? I think he's having to dispel these rumors. People are saying John gets older and he's getting older and all the other disciples have, have been martyred. And people are saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, when they were on the beach, you know, uh, Jesus told John he was never going to die. That he was going to have the spiritual gift of immortality. John's saying, oh, you weird people. It's not what he said. And I think what happens is, is we find out, this is, this is the way I take it, is I think John, who has lived into his 90s and seen all of his friends die and be martyred, and not only that, lived through the first century of the church and suffering and persecution, and yet the gospel going to parts of the world they never imagined and didn't even know about. And all the suffering and all the hardship and all the long years that John lived, I think for the purpose of John being able to be the one who would be there, exiled, on an island called Patmos so that when Jesus was ready to come back and give the revelation, the final bit, the final look into what was coming, the last revealed word, that John was going to be the one that wrote it down. And through all the years of suffering and hardship and all the pain and yet all the good things, John concludes about his life this. I'm the one Jesus loved. And so are you, by the way. So are you. Verse 24 is his signature. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who's written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. And then look at verse 25. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know, it's interesting. If you read, if you just took the Gospels and you just read the red letters, which, you know, the words of Jesus from beginning to the end, it would take you a little less than three hours probably. But if you consider the infinite work of the eternal life of the only begotten Son of God, you, you realize John's statement here about the world not being able to contain all the books that would be written. It's actually not an exaggeration. It's not an overstatement. In fact, when considering Jesus and who He is and what He's done, and what he's doing and the sacrifice he made and all that he accomplished and the one who fulfilled the perfect plan of the triune God decreed before the foundations of time and the creation of the world is not an exaggeration. It's not an overstatement. In fact, it's an understatement. It's an image of the magnitude of Jesus 
and His greatness and His grace and His love. And it's an image tailored to our finite minds. And we read it and we go, whoa, that's overwhelming. But it's an image that is in fact far too small to truly picture the infinite glory of the Son. The infinite grace of Jesus. John began, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he ends it this way, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you have life in His name? Do you believe that He's the Son of God? God made flesh who dwelt among us and died for your sin and died for my sin so that we could stand safely in the holiness and glory and joy of the God who created us. Do you know this morning about yourself? You are the one whom Jesus loves. And wherever you are this morning, run to Him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you do what only you can do this morning.